and welcome to episode number three of the Anno Domini podcast, a podcast dedicated to the supremacy of Christ over all things, including our days, weeks, and months. Join me as we explore how Christ is revealed through the cyclical life of the church calendar year. We'll discover how this calendar once structured culture and how it can again. We'll also discuss practical ways to observe and celebrate these holy days in our quest to glorify God and live the good life in the midst of all the good He has given us. Welcome back to week three of our year-long journey of following the liturgical church calendar. My name is Joe Stout, and I'll be your host today. So a little bit of history. My wife and I and our seven children, we decided to spend a year following the liturgical calendar. And so this podcast is really an outcropping of that. We're basically walking with you if you are choosing to follow the church calendar as well. It's our first time through it. Um, and since the church new year started on December 1st of 2019, and which with the uh, first Sunday of Advent, we are now at the third Sunday of Advent, which is sometimes called Gaudete Sunday, which I will explain my understanding of in more detail later. But suffice it to say that this day should be marked with joy and rejoicing. We have much to rejoice over because the King of Kings is drawing near. The Savior of the world is here. So take joy, dear Christians. Christ has overcome the darkness. So this podcast is divided really into four parts. We start with practical ways to celebrate the holiday, whatever holiday it is that we're, we're talking about. Uh, then we move on to a biblical portion that's connected to the celebrated day, and it's chosen from the lectionary. If you want to know more about the lectionary, see last week's podcast, episode number two, um, and uh, I go into more detail there. Um, our third section uh, generally looks at the historic ways in which the church and our forefathers have followed the calendar and some of the tools and traditions and insights uh, that have sprung from that, have kind of come out of that. Uh, and then we finish the podcast with an in-depth look at an ancient hymn that can be tied to the holiday. So let's get started. That church bell you heard, just heard is me kind of trying out some new formatting things for the podcast. Uh, basically, I want to distinguish with some type of audio cue that we're switching to a different section instead of me just saying that we're switching sections. So we'll try that one out and, and see how it works. Hopefully it's not too distracting. So on the practical side of Advent celebrations, I've got to say that celebrating holidays is a ton of work. You know, when we look at the plethora of ways the Jews angered Yahweh in the Old Testament, we often see right at the top of the list a refusal to celebrate his commanded feast days at the forefront. In other words, God told his people to rest, or he told them to have a party, or he somehow tried to bless them by giving them good works to do, much like he does today. 
And they did everything. They complained, they corrupted the work, they simply ignored the feast day altogether. But the big thing was, is they didn't obey him. And that really made God angry in the Old Testament. While I certainly don't want to condone their sin, I can also understand why not resting or celebrating is tempting. There is usually a lot of preparation that goes into the feast or celebration in question, and this can make it hard to want to obey because what we think of as a blessing is usually self-centered. When we think of blessings in our own lives, we think of self-centered things. You know, we want peace and quiet. We want to veg out on something. We want to do our own thing and not be hindered by intentionally doing anything, especially resting. You know, we can sometimes conflate resting and a word like, say, relaxing. We can conflate those. We can kind of make them seem like they're the same word. And they definitely seem similar, but they can reveal themselves to be very different in their acts or in the way we go about doing them. See, relaxing is like taking a long, hot shower or sitting in a hot tub. It really requires nothing from us, uh, and it really only offers benefits to us. Um, resting, on the other hand, at least intentional resting, usually requires discipline. And the, the Jews, they, they understood this because the day before the Sabbath, they set that aside as the day of preparation. They were preparing for rest uh, that paradoxically required work to achieve. So it requires work to rest. And this is really not unlike our own journey of faith. We're accepted by God through the blood of Christ. And we respond to this acceptance with faith, and this faith results in good works, lots of them. Good works that God has planned out long before the world began. And these good works culminate when our temporal life ends and our eternal life begins with Jesus, because that's referred to as entering his rest. So what is the difference between relaxing and rest? Well, one really requires nothing from you, and the other requires work and discipline and obedience, and it requires obedience to something outside of your own desires. So with that all in mind, our family of nine found our celebrations of Advent to be very encouraging, but also not for the faint of heart. You see, celebrating the liturgical calendar should not be thought of in merely, say, a romanticized way. In other words, celebrating is work in a way that should not be only done when it feels, you know, nostalgic or like a postcard or, or something where you feel good about it. You know, you, we talk about romantic love and agape love. Romantic love is feeling all these good feelings about something, somebody, and agape love is choosing to love them in spite of all their flaws, uh, in spite of how you feel. If you feel romantic or you don't feel romantic, you still love your spouse. That's, that's really, really important. And celebrating the liturgical calendar is similar. Um, if, if all we wanted was the nostalgic feeling of Christmas, we would celebrate it once a year. And that'd be the only thing we'd celebrate. And, and we'd, we'd, um, we'd do it largely the way most um, people celebrate Christmas, which is it's like a month. And you get to have your hopes built up and your expectations built up and largely let down and fight with your family and, and uh, wonder to yourself why the holidays can't be better. But that's not what celebrating holidays is about. It's about submitting ourselves to not our own desires, but to the desires of those that are outside of us, primarily God, and then our 
um, than our fellow man. Um, so, you know, we continued as a family our nightly celebrations. We'd turn off all the lights and and then we'd make some way, we'd kind of mark some way in which our, um, our own lives are dark without Jesus. And there's all kinds of ways you can, you can get really, you don't have to be all that creative. There's like um, the examples abound in ways that our lives are dark without Jesus. And it just gives the kids something really, uh, really fun to, to look forward to. But honestly, if it was just Elizabeth and I, if we didn't have kids with us, um, we would still do the whole darkness to light candle process. I think we would at least because, because it's such a powerful visual picture. Uh, so, you know, in, you know, as uh, the way we do it is we, we have a, a candle for every day of the day of Advent. So come Christmas Eve, the last day of Advent, there's going to be 24 um, candles on the table. And uh, we've been doing this for maybe three or four years now. I had one of my college roommates tell me that it looked like we had a bonfire on our table by the night before Christmas. It was, it was pretty cool. But, you know, as the day as the um, as more candles are lit, we're constantly reminded of the victory of the gospel. As each night another candle is lit and the darkness flees a little more, as we approach the birth of our Lord. The lectionary passage this week, um, actually the lectionary passages, because there's always four, um, are Isaiah 35. It's the whole chapter, and we're actually going to be discussing that today. Um, the psalm will be 146, Psalm 146. The epistle reading will come from James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. And our gospel reading is found in Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 15. So in keeping with the theme of the last two weeks, we'll look at the passage from Isaiah 35. So let's read it now and, and remember as you're listening to this, that this is the very word of God. Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not, behold your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sign shall flee away. The word of the Lord. So in chapter 34, Isaiah has been prophesying some pretty grim destruction on the people and the land of Edom. You've got to think about that, people and land. But now in chapter 35, a new hope is foretold. 
It's promised that the wilderness will no longer be in sorrow, but will be glad and shall blossom and rejoice with joy and singing. The ground, cursed not only by the Edomites, but by the sin of Adam, will begin to reverse with the coming of the king. Just as the Christmas carol promised, no more, no more let sin or sorrow grow or thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known, far as the curse is found. So verses 3 through 6 speak of the work that will be done in that day. Weak hands will be made strong. Knees that are shaking will be made firm. Anxious hearts are calmed. Blind eyes are opened. Deaf ears are unstopped. Lame men will go about leaping, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Does this remind us of anyone in particular? Was there perhaps a new Adam, who was both fully God and fully man, who set about on earth with this work in mind, a mind to accomplish what the first Adam could not? Can you guys think of anybody? You see, the first Adam plunged the world into wilderness, and his rebellion cursed the ground. Before the curse, there was no weeds. It was He would not have had to bring forth food from the ground by the sweat of his brow. But the first Adam, he cursed the ground. His rebellion cursed the ground. But the second Adam watered the wilderness and made it bloom again. On the day of his resurrection, you guys remember when Mary, seeing Jesus, she assumes him to be the gardener? <laughs> she wasn't wrong at all. Christ is the true gardener, the one who is making the wilderness bloom again. He, he was doing what that first Adam was supposed to do. He was put in the garden to tend it, to be the gardener. And instead of tending it, he was thrown out and the world was cursed. The new Adam, the second Adam, the better Adam, was put into the garden and he made it bloom again. So this passage ends with the promise that the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing and that everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. We're promised that these ransomed will obtain gladness and joy. Because the sorrow and sign that was previously a part of their life will flee away. This joy is both something in our hearts that we do experience, a real sensation of joy, but it's also a person. It's also the Savior of the world, the Christ. As I alluded to in the opening of the show, the third Sunday of Advent is regarded somewhat differently than the first, the second, or the fourth Sundays of Advent. Um, and as a church, we have called this uh, Gaudete. Uh, we've called it Gaudete Sunday, actually, because the historic passage read publicly, publicly during this day of worship has always been Philippians 4, uh, 4 through 6, which of course begins with, Rejoice in the Lord always. So the ecclesiastical Latin word for rejoice is gaudete. And therefore the theme surrounding this day is one of rejoicing. It also goes back in, in time to when Advent was seen as more like uh, maybe what we think of as Lent today. It was kind of a, a time of fasting instead of a time of, of eager anticipation uh, that we do now. Uh, and so gaudete was the, the Sunday where you kind of had a... Um, uh, in the midst of your sorrow waiting for the coming of Jesus, you had this Sunday of, of joy. That, that kind of uh, experience is not, so, is, is not as uh, focused on today because we don't usually see, uh, except for the Roman Catholics, we don't really look at um, Advent 
as being like a time of penitence or kind of like Lent where we're kind of, it's, it's like a mournful time or a fasting time. It's really a time of, of joy and of celebration and of feasting. So Gaudete is kind of joy upon joy. The Gaudete Sunday is is the is the joyful of should be the most joyful of all joyful Sundays, or at least that's the idea. Um, and interestingly, the gospel reading uh, in this uh, from Matthew eleven shows that John it shows John sitting discouraged in a prison cell, and he's discouraged or he's perplexed or it's it's not really clear what he's feeling, um, but he's sending word via his disciples to Christ, asking him. He's basically saying. Are, are you the one promised? Are, are you the one promised or should we wait for someone else? And, and Jesus responds, encouraging him, building up, uh, building up his faith. He says that the words of Isaiah are being fulfilled. And by extension, we can say that he was building up the brokenhearted. That's what Jesus was doing to John, even though it was, um, you know, it was from afar because John was in prison and, and Jesus was somewhere else. Jesus was binding up the brokenhearted or building up the brokenhearted. And, and so he was encouraging John in the midst of his sorrow to, to be joyful. And in our epistle reading from James, James is doing something very similar. He is telling us to be patient in trials. He doesn't go so far as to say rejoice in those trials. Uh, he says that at the beginning of the book when he says count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. But in chapter 5 he says be patient under suffering because the kingdom of God is coming. Uh, Jesus tells John, I am coming. You know, don't don't lose heart. I am coming. Uh, and so, you know, building them up with what? What is Jesus? He, he was building John up with what in his discouragement? He was building him up with joy, of course, because that is the historic theme of, of this third Sunday of Advent. The Gaudete Sunday is one of rejoicing in all things. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. All right, one note before we jump into this week's hymn is that I am getting this podcast up very late uh, in the week. Normally, I try to have it up a day or two before the holiday that we're celebrating. Um, this week, it didn't happen because I've spent an enormous amount of time. I need to do a shout out to Elizabeth. Elizabeth, you're the best. Thank you for letting me spend all that time. But I've spent an enormous amount of time getting the album, Advent, um, that will contain all of these songs that we've been discussing and that we will discuss in coming weeks. I've been getting all of those songs done and finished and released. So I'm happy to say that uh, it's been released to all the major streaming services such as Spotify and iTunes. Uh, it should be available on those platforms in the next few days. Uh, if you want to listen to it now and you want to download it now, it's all totally free. You don't have to pay for, any, pay for it at all. Um, I have it available on my, what's called a Bandcamp profile. It's basically just a, a place where you can upload, uh, upload music that other people can uh, download or listen to. So I, I'll have a link in the show notes um, that directs you to the music. Um, there's going to be six songs in all, two of which were highlighted in episodes one and two, uh, and four additional songs as yet unheard. Uh, number three, of course, will be heard today. Uh, so I hope you're blessed by them, and I'll be glad to get a break from working on them now that they're finished, because I've been spending just an enormous amount of time on them, and uh, I'm, I'm really glad to be done with them. So I hope you're blessed by them. Okay, back to the topic at hand. Um, the last two weeks, we've examined ancient hymns, like 4th century ancient hymns. This week, we're going to do, um, we're going to jump ahead uh, over a thousand years 
Uh, it's still not a modern hymn, but uh, maybe modern by comparison. Um, we're, we're certainly closer to the hymn writer than um, the authors of last, week, last week's hymns were. Um, but it's to a German hymn writer uh, from 1642. Uh, it was a German hymn. It was written in 1642 by George Weissel. Uh, and the translated title of the hymn, because of course it was originally in German, is Lift Up Your Heads. Um, it was actually translated by the very prolific hymn translator, Catherine Winkworth. It was translated back in 1855. Catherine, as I said before, it was, has been just prolific, or was prolific, in her translation of German hymns. And just some beautiful ones, incredible ones, some of Martin Luther's and... One of the ones that she's very uh, well known for is Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of Creation. Oh, my soul, praise Him, for He is thy health and salvation. That, that's, that, that's one a lot of people know. That was Catherine Winkworth. But, but she uh, translated George Weissel's. Uh, so let's get a look at his words of Lift Up Your Heads. Lift up your heads, ye mighty gates. Behold, the King of glory waits. The King of kings is drawing near. The Savior of the world is here. Life and salvation he will bring, wherefore rejoice and gladly sing. We praise thee, Father, now, creator wise art thou. The Lord is just, a helper tried, mercy is ever at his side. His kingly crown is holiness, his scepter pity in distress. The end of all our woe he brings, wherefore the earth is glad and sings. We praise thee, Savior, now, mighty indeed. Art thou? O bless the land, the city blessed, where Christ the ruler is confessed. O happy hearts and happy homes to whom this King of glory comes. The cloudless sun of joy he is, who bringeth pure delight and bliss. O comforter divine, what boundless grace is thine. Redeemer, come, I open wide my heart to thee. Here, Lord, abide. Let me thy inner presence feel, thy grace and love in me reveal. Thy Holy Spirit guide us on, until our glorious goal is won. Eternal praise and fame we offer to thy name. So this hymn is set around Psalm 24. It's kind of built around that. Um, in, in Psalm 24, uh, it describes that the earth and everything in it belongs to God, and so we should be waiting for the coming of the King of Glory. We sing that the Savior of the world is here. What a wonderful thought. God set out to save his elect, but that elect includes, eventually, all of creation. No, not everyone will be saved. Many will reject him. But many more will come to him and unto salvation. So with this salvation and life that he brings, and with the keeping of the theme of the Lord's Day, we remember to rejoice and sing with gladness, for God is indeed wise. And, and I've talked about this in the last two weeks. An oft-used device in hymn, in hymn writing is to conclude the song with a doxology to the triune nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, and this hymn takes a slightly different approach, and it focuses the first three verses on the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, respectively. And so this first verse has focused our praises on the Father. Now, the second verse focuses uh, more on the work of the Son. The second verse describes Jesus as just and a helper. Mercy is at his side, and he wears a crown of holiness, and yet carries a, septi a scepter 
of pity or compassion for those who are in distress. Um, he ends our woe, uh, and so the earth is glad and sings. He takes our woe and he, and he removes it far from us. And therefore, we praise him, our Savior, who is mighty indeed. And we, of course, we rejoice. And verse 3 begins by affirming the promise that the land and the city will be blessed where Christ is confessed as ruler. Oh, how we need the reigning presence of Christ in our country and in the hearts of our rulers. And I often hear Christians take what I think of as a very secular argument. And that argument goes uh, something like uh, that Christianity is a private relationship with Christ, and therefore it shouldn't be brought into the public square. I couldn't disagree more with this. Without Christ, our rulers have become insane. They've been driven insane by their own degeneracy. And, and they've, they've, been, have, they've had this insatiable uh, degeneracy for every imaginable lust of the heart and flesh. Without Christ as king, our civic life can only exist. It can't thrive. And, it then, it, and even then, it can only exist for a time with the always uh, impending doom of judgment hanging above it. So, you know, Christ needs to be in the hearts, um, in, the, in the land, and in the city of every country that, that, that seeks the blessing of God. Well, let's move on. Happy hearts and happy homes are the vision for uh, those to whom the King of Glory comes and is received with joy. So if, 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 you're, if you're yearning for the coming of Jesus, if Jesus was to come today or in 10,000 years, uh, whenever he comes, if he was to come and you were to welcome him with joy, that is a happy heart and a happy home. Uh, the Holy Spirit of Christ, uh, it says later, is that he's the cloudless sun that brings pure delight and bliss. Therefore, again, we praise the Holy Spirit. Uh, here, it's, he's called the Comforter Divine. Uh, but we, we, we praise the Holy Spirit or the Comforter Divine for the boundless grace that he bestows. And then verse 4, um, actually, I, I think it's kind of interesting because when I, when I first played this song for Elizabeth, she was actually surprised by verse 4. And, and on, upon reflection, I agree with her. Uh, and she kind of mentioned that it sounds much more kind of evangelical than uh, the previous three verses of the hymn uh, or anything of what we've played in the past um, or any of the songs that we will be discussing for that matter. Uh, and, and one of the things that makes it sound kind of evangelical, when I, when I say evangelical, I mean more kind of like modern churchy, uh, is that it kind of focuses on the heart of the believer which is, of course, a very common theme in modern music. Um, in, the, in the hymn, we sing asking the Redeemer to come and abide in our hearts. We ask that we might be able to feel His presence and to have His love in us revealed. We ask that the Holy Spirit would guide us in our glorious goal of glorifying and praising Him, uh, all while during this earthly life. Uh, and then, of course, we promise our praise and our fame would only go to Him. Now, Shifting to sing to God about ourselves is certainly not bad, and, and, and the way this hymn does it is, is very reverent, and it's, the, the, things are, the things that we're asking of God is very good. We're supposed to ask God for things, our daily bread. If you read through the Psalms, the Psalms are constantly asking for things of God about ourselves. So we shouldn't be afraid to sing about us to God. However, I think it becomes an issue when the main focus of most of our worship is on us, it's on our devotion to God, our faithfulness, our feelings, our needs, our wants. It becomes a problem then. Um, these are important, but they need to be put in their proper place, uh, such as in verse 4, 
after we have spent three verses giving God the glory due his name. And so with that, I'll go ahead and finish up by playing a new version of the nearly 400-year-old hymn, Lift Up Your Heads. And again, don't forget that this is track three of the new album called Advent, and you can go to the podcast website, anodominipodcast.com, or you can check your show notes if you know how to do that. Um, But you go to anodominipodcast.com, and I'll include a link to the album there. Um, Or just check your favorite streaming service in the next few days, and it should show up there as well. So I hope everyone has a joyful third Sunday of Advent, and I will see you all next week. salvation he will bring wherefore rejoice and gladly sing we praise you father now creator wise art thou the lord is just Holy Spirit, guide us on until our 
Thank you.